0: Good to see you tonight. Uh, I, I got my comf- comfortable shoes on tonight. I just It's what I wore to class today, and I thought, well, they won't mind. They looked comfortable last night, so I'll wear my comfortable shoes. These are Chuck Taylors, and uh, they're kind of they're cool now, but I, I, I wore them at a time when there weren't any other options. That, that's what you wore in gym class in school. You didn't have options. It, it, that's all you could get and uh they were white and black that's all that's the two colors uh, that I remembered and so I'd wish I'd kept them from when I was in eighth grade and ninth grade but uh, I was able to get some new ones so they're, they're good for teaching um and um I heard I got on a on a not I guess it's it's a, it's hard but it's it's good too um I teach, or where I teach in at OBU, my department our administrative assistant for the dean is uh is Nola Mosley and uh, her daughter uh goes here I'm sure she's not here tonight uh but uh Nola's father died today and, and his name's Sam Cathy you uh you may remember Sam Cathy the evangelist uh pastor um and uh, so I think the funeral um, I think it might be Friday um, at like 10.30 in the morning, I think, at Grace Graceway. That's right. So um, Nola's been great, and she's leaving us at the end of this semester because uh, her husband, Matt, is uh, going to, I think, Eagle Heights maybe as a youth minister. So we hate to see her go, but she's been great for us for the last, I guess, five or six years and uh, so we hate to see her go but she's been having Sam's been having health problems her mother is gonna have to have heart surgery like three triple bypass or something like that so they've been going through it uh, in the last few months but uh, but Sam died today and so his health had really been in decline hospice had been called in and uh, and so he's free now so that's the it, it's sad, but at the same time, I think they'll see this as uh, as he's set free from all those issues he'd been battling health wise. And what a perfect text—we're we're right at a text that speaks to uh, issues like this. So we're going to pick up uh, tonight at Second Corinthians chapter five, and uh, we're going to pick it up. Actually, we're going to pick it up at four sixteen. That's where we were. So if you are looking uh, through the handout that you have. Um, we're in the section, or, or on the structure section. Um, of course, I'll start back at the body, bold body, one twelve through thirteen ten. Roman numeral one: the character, conduct, and crisis of Paul's ministry. That's the first part of the body. There's three parts to the body of the letter. We've, we've only been in the first part of the body uh, last night, and tonight we're going to finish up this first part of the body. Uh, and we talked about last night, then, A, Paul's defense of his travel plans. He had to change his travel plans on two occasions, and they were, his opponents were accusing him somehow that this showed he didn't have a good connection with God and questioned his apostleship. B, the character of Paul's ministry, 2.14-7.4, through 74, and that's where we were uh, last night. We talked about suffering uh, as a triumphal procession, that Paul feels like he's in a Roman victory parade except he's not the victor at the moment. He's like a captive being led around suffering. B, suffering as perfume, the aroma to Christ, and then he suffers because he's not a peddler of the word. So that's Paul's ministry of suffering, two fourteen through 17. Then Paul's ministry of the spirit, 3, 1 through 18. You remember last night I talked about Exodus 32, 33, 34. And he contrasted uh, the old covenant, which was a minister, ministry of the law of the letter written on tablets of stone. And the consequence of that law, the, the, the covenant uh, under the law of Moses, was condemnation. He's a minister of the new covenant which is written on the human heart and it leads not to condemnation but to justification. And so he's, he's a minister of, a, of a, a better covenant, the covenant of grace, the covenant of the spirit. And because of that, he's a minister of the spirit. So no one can charge he doesn't carry out his ministry in the power of the spirit. Paul's ministry as treasure in a clay pot, 4-1 through five ten, And that's where we are. Uh, at the moment so let's pick it up there at 5 16 going to skip right to there Paul says so we do not lose heart now just flip back to 4 1 he says there therefore since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry we do not lose heart so you see that we do not lose heart at 4 1 Now, at 4.16, he comes back, he makes the same claim. so we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. So Paul does not lose heart. He continues to be bold. He continues to keep going, even though it might be difficult, because he believes, he has this future hope. He believes in the resurrection of the body. That although the outer body, the outer man, what you can see might be fragile. Just because it's in decay doesn't mean that's going to be the end. He believes in a future hope. And that's what he's going to describe here. He says again, even though our outer nature is wasting away. You know, he talked about the clay pot, the earthen vessel. That's the outer nature. This fragile clay pot that we all have that we call a body. That's the outer nature. He says, although it's wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. And I think what he means by the inner nature is what he will sometimes call the heart or the soul. It's something that can't be seen, but is a much better way to define a person than the outer person. Just because you're suffering and the outer man suffers, that does not change who you are. And you can see someone who suffers terribly whose clay pot is really cracked. And, but it's still that person. And, and there's something about that person that can't be taken away because of suffering, physical suffering. And so our, outer, our inner nature, he says, the heart, the soul, you know, who you really are, uh, is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. And and when he says this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for something beyond all measure, it reminds me of what he says in Romans 8, 18. He says this present suffering is not worth even comparing with the glory that shall be revealed in us or to us. It's that same idea that although you might suffer now, there's a future hope. There is the hope of the resurrection of the body. There's the hope of future glory. This is not all there is. And the physical suffering you might endure here does not define us ultimately. We're more than our physical suffering. He says in verse 18, Because we look not at what can be seen, but what it cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. And he says at 5.1, For we know... That if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So now he uses the image of the body, in a sense, is a tent. It's a dwelling place. It's something that the inner man dwells within, the heart, the soul dwells within this body as part of this person. And he says, Although we live in this earthly tent, Doesn't that sound like his language of an earthen vessel? It's another way of talking about this clay pot. He says, for if the earthly tent we live in is is destroyed, we have a house that is not made by human hands. It's made by God, eternal in the heavens. And here he's contrasting this present body, which decays, which can suffer, with the resurrection body, uh, which will be eternal, which will not endure suffering, uh, and and, and that's a good contrast to make. That's what his hope is in. He says, verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And now he changes the metaphor just a little. It was like house, a household, a house, a structure. That we have this temporary house, he calls it a tent, But we have this eternal dwelling not made by human hands in the heaven. And and we long for that eternal dwelling. We long for the resurrection body. So that's one way to think about his future hope. The other image he uses now is is like putting on something. Something you put on. You don't put on a house. He's changed the metaphor now. So again he says uh, longing to be clothed. This is the second part of verse 2. For in this tent we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What has the Spirit guaranteed to us? Death, death's not the thing. We act like death is the thing. Like death's the thing where that's the, that's the point we're all longing for. You know, once we die, we get everything. And that's just not what the New Testament teaches. When we die, we are with Jesus. We're, we're, there's nothing to worry about for that person. We are in the presence of Jesus. But we still have not received Everything that God has for us. You don't get the resurrection body at the moment you die. That's something that's still out there awaiting us. And 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18 would be a nice text to talk about when, when we hear the voice of the archangel and the, and the trumpet of God. and When Jesus says, get up out of there, out of the grave, that's when we receive the resurrection body. That's when we get everything that God has for us. So death's not really the thing. The the Spirit does not guarantee death. The Spirit guarantees the resurrection body. The fact that we have the Spirit now is like God's down payment that there's more to come. And the more to come is the resurrection body. So this is the, the language of being clothed. We long to put on the resurrection body rather than this present garment that we wear around. And he uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about taking off this mortal and putting on immortal. Taking off this perishable and putting on imperishable. So he can use the metaphor of putting it on, like the resurrection body, like you put a garment on, or of a house. And we live in this earthly tent now, but we look forward to a house not made with human hands, eternal in the heavens. This is all the promise of a future hope. Now you tell me, wouldn't this be a pretty miserable existence if you thought this is it? If you thought the, the, the 90 some years, if you're very fortunate that you get in this life, that's it. And how about those people who live a life of maybe, maybe 70, maybe 80 years and a great deal of that is suffering? Man, I mean, you'd want to make the most of it even if you knew that to be the case. But I wouldn't feel a lot of hope in that. I'd, I think I'd end up living a rather miserable existence if I thought this was it and this was the best it was ever going to be. And that there would never be a time when things were made right. When, when justice was fully carried out. And that we'd have an eternal dwelling, not made with human hands. That that gave Paul what he needed to not lose heart, to keep going, even though he suffered so much in this earthly tent. And so I think it's a great picture of, of the person who suffers in this world, who suffers in this life, but does not lose heart because of the hope of the future. And thus, we should all recognize that no matter what happens to this earthly tent, it cannot diminish who we really are. There is a part of us, call it the heart, call it the soul, that, that cannot be taken away. It's being renewed day by day. It can't be destroyed by cancer or by any other disease or by any other suffering that might come upon us. And Paul says it the most powerfully here of anyone I know, but I know someone else who said it pretty well, and I don't even know if he was a Christian. Uh, when I graduated from high school in 1983, uh, the North Carolina State Wolfpack won the NCAA tournament that year, and it's one of the great tournament runs in history. Jim Valvano was the coach of North Carolina State at the time, and they played at that time not as many teams got into the tournament it was it was tougher to get into the tournament and and they happened to play in the ACC at a time when the university of virginia had ralph sampson and north carolina had michael jordan and sam perkins and james worthy and these were these were it was the conference was unbelievable at that time so just to get into the tournament you had to have a great season you had to beat great teams so they'd had some hard luck in that season. Their best player had broken his leg, but he was just getting back for the, for the tournament, for the conference tournament. And they had to win the ACC tournament just to get in the NCAA tournament. They had to beat Virginia and North Carolina on back-to-back days, and they did, miraculously. So now they're in the NCAA tournament. And every game, with the exception of one game, they were trailing late in the game, and they just started fouling the other team, and the other team would miss free throws, and they'd go down and score, and they were winning these miraculous games. I mean, just, it was one of these Cinderella stories, you just can't even believe it. Some of you probably remember it. And, um, and they ended up making it to the national championship game. Against the University of Houston Cougars, and they were loaded with NBA talent, and not, and I mean athletes, talented players. They they were called Phi Slamma Jamma because they could all dunk it, and it was it was like a show when you go to watch them. So everybody, the talk was, how how bad are they going to beat North Carolina? Can North Carolina State even stay in the game? And he was playing it up. You know, we may not take a shot until Tuesday morning, or what. Well, the game started, and they weren't holding the ball. They were just playing. And it was a close game all the way to the end. And miraculously, you know, North Carolina State has the ball down one, I think, with, with, with the clock running out, and I guess Derek Wittenberg takes a shot, and it's short, but one of their players just jumps up, grabs it, and dunks it in, and they win the game. And Valvano runs around the floor looking for somebody to hug. The player he'd been hugging all through the tournament was hugging somebody else at that point, so he's just running around. He doesn't know what to do. And he he was such a personality. That was 1983. In 1992, so just about a a decade later, uh, he was dying with cancer. And they were giving him an award. ESPN was giving him an award at ESPN... Whatever the award show at that time was called. It's, called. it's called the ESPYs now, I think. And, of course, now the award they gave him is the Jim Valvano Award. But he was near death, maybe within a month of dying. But he made it to that award show. And not many people knew at the time just how sick he was. I mean, he could hardly stand up. So they get him up on the stage, and he, he looks frail. But once he starts talking, he's, he's good. And, and he gave a great speech and one of the lines uh, in that speech was cancer can take away all my physical abilities but it cannot touch my mind it cannot touch my heart and it cannot touch my soul. These three will go on forever. And I don't even know if he was a Christian but he'd sure tapped into something that was true when he said that. I think that's That's a nice summary of everything Paul is saying here. Suffering, hardship, disease, it might be all over your body. But there is a part of you that goes beyond the physical, your physical body. And disease and suffering cannot touch that. That's that inner man that's being renewed day by day. And this just gave Paul great confidence and courage. To not lose heart. And I think it can do the same for us in our own time. And then he ends this little discussion here. I'm going to skip down to verse 9. He says, so that whether we are at home or away, whether we're in this current earthly tent or whether we're in that uh, in, the, in the new dwelling, not made with human hands... We make it our aim to please him, for all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive recompense for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So it it, it may seem an odd ending that he would end with a reminder about a coming judgment where human beings will stand before God and give an account for how they've lived their lives in this body. And here's why I think he needs to do that. He's so downplayed the significance of this earthly tent, this current body in which we live, that somebody could say, well, then it doesn't really matter what we do in this body. It's just this earthly dwelling. If I'm really this inner person that I might call the soul or something like that, that's who I really am, and this body's temporary, and we have this other body waiting for us in heaven, then it really doesn't matter what we do with this body. And that would play into a lot of, the way that most of the people in Paul's day would have thought about the body. Uh, Greeks and even the, just the Greco-Roman world tended to have a very negative view of the body. That somehow the body was evil. And, and part of being, you know, of, of real living, of, of experience in real life was somehow being set free from this earthly body. Not for a new body, but just to be disembodied. That body is somehow negative or evil or bad. And that is not Christian theology. The body is not evil. The body is a temple of the Holy Spirit if you're a believer. And it matters what we do in the body. We may have it, it may be a temporary dwelling for us. But even in the time we've been given, whether that's, you know, till, to, to 30 or 50 or 90 or 100 it matters what we do in this body. And we will give an account for how we've lived our lives in this body. And I think Paul felt the need at the end of all this discussion about the temporary nature of the body and this other body that's waiting for us in heaven is a is need to say, but it does matter what you do in this body. Don't take what I'm saying to mean, doesn't matter how you live in the body. It does matter. So, Judgments are coming, and the, and the judgment is not whether you're in or out that he's talking about. This is a judgment of believers as to how you've lived your life in this body. Have you been a good steward of the time that you've been given? Now he moves now in five hundred eleven to the last section of this description of his ministry. Now let's review. What has he said about his ministry? It's a ministry of suffering. It's a ministry of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit and of the Spirit. His ministry is one marked by a great treasure. That's how he understands his ministry. As a great treasure that God has placed in a very earthen vessel. There's a frailty uh, to this uh, clay pot. And God has placed this great treasure in it. And, and that, that's, that typifies the kind of ministry he's had. A lot of suffering in an earthen vessel. And yet this great treasure is embodied uh, there. And then finally, his is a ministry of reconciliation. His ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. He says, therefore, based on what I just said, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. But we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we're also well known to your consciences. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in heart. And and you can see what he's doing. He does not want to be seen as defending himself. He's telling the Corinthians what they need to know, hopefully by way of reminder, so they can make the case for him to these false apostles, to these super apostles, to these false teachers. And apparently, they make much of their outward appearance. And that would be in keeping with a lot of these teachers who walked around and taught, and, and they looked good, and they were rhetorically uh, skilled, and, and they charged people for their teaching. Took advantage of them. Peddlers of God's word. Uh, and he said. Uh, for those who might be too focused on the outward appearance. Rather than the inner person. He says I'm, I'm talking to them. And, and when he says. In verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord. We try to persuade others. Therefore. Knowing the fear of the Lord. So look back to what he just said, and that'll help you understand what he means by knowing the fear of the Lord. What did he just say? We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for how we've lived our lives in this body. At that point, the question's not in or out for us. It's how have you lived your life in this body as a believer? What's the fear? Well, not that you'll be thrown out, but that the way you've lived your life might not be pleasing. I mean, I think that'd be the most crushing thing of all. Uh, You're a believer, but what you did in the body was not always, or not typically, or maybe not, I don't know what percentage, but was often not in obedience to God. How about others who stand before Christ on that day and the issue is in or out and they're out? Paul feels like his ministry of reconciliation is a ministry of preparation for others so that when they stand before Christ, they they will not have to be ashamed or they won't have to be afraid. So this is why this compels him, this urges him to keep going in this ministry of reconciliation because of the fear of the Lord. He wants to be found faithful, and he wants to prepare others so that they'll be found faithful when they stand before the Lord. So it's not only himself, I think, that he's worried about. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account for the way they've lived their lives. He's not only worried about his own reckoning on that day, but he wants to prepare others so that they won't have to be afraid or ashamed on that day that's a pretty good motivation to carry out your ministry so that you'll be found faithful when you stand before the Lord and you're helping to prepare others to stand before the Lord on that day. And whatever ministry you have, that's the ministry we're in. A ministry of reconciliation. Of of our own reconciliation with God and of helping others to be reconciled to God. And this reconciliation not only works this way. But we're to be ministers of reconciliation this way. We should not only be about preparing people. To stand before Christ. So that they're reconciled with him. But also we should be the kinds of people. Who are helping brothers and sisters. To be reconciled to one another. This ministry of reconciliation is, is, is all consuming. And so. At verse 13, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it's for you. It's almost as if this beside ourselves, if we're mad, if we have ecstatic experiences, if we have these, you know, revelations where we're caught up into the third heaven, those kinds of things. He says, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. So two motivations here for Paul's ministry. The first one is the fear of the Lord, knowing the fear of the Lord. The second one is the love of Christ. So he's got two pretty primal motivating factors here, fear and love. Now, if you ask me which one of those is the greater motivation, there's no doubt. There's no, in my mind, there's no question. The highest and greatest motivation in the world is love. Love will compel you to do things that you would not otherwise do. I don't know how you parent without love. Because you know from time to time as a parent you kind of have to go beyond uh, what you ever thought you would, what you hoped you would. You find yourself, uh, it, it, it gets hard from time to time. What keeps you going when it gets really hard not just in parenting but in life i think love is the greatest motivating factor in the world but fear is also a motivating factor and paul says both of these compel me drive me forward urge me on the fear of the lord and the love of christ now i would guess back in the day when uh, Owen was in a Greek class with me, we probably talked about the use of the genitive case in Greek. And he I'm sure he enjoyed that much more than you would tonight if I broke out in a discussion of the genitive case in Greek. But it, it's an ambiguous case in Greek. It needs to be interpreted. Love of Christ. There's a little ambiguity with, to that. If Paul says the love of Christ, compels me. Love of Christ compels me to carry out the ministry of reconciliation. That could mean his love for Christ compels him because he loves Christ so much that drives him because he wants to please Christ because he loves it. What else could love of Christ mean? Christ's love for him. He could mean I'm compelled to in this ministry because Christ loves me. Now, you might say, well, I wouldn't want to have to choose between those. Well, maybe we don't have to. We've got a category for that, the, the sort of both category that maybe he had both in mind, and maybe he did. He may have had, if he did have one of those, whether it's Christ's love for me that compels me or my love for Christ that compels me, I think for Paul, it'd be Christ's love for him. Because he's always talking about how overwhelmed he is that God loved him and showed mercy to him, a person like him. So I think if I had to, had to choose one or the other, I'd go with that one. But I don't think either would lead you in the wrong direction. You know, it'd be, it'd be sort of like, uh, why do you do the things you do for your husband or your wife? What compels you to be loving and kind and, and gracious and all those things? Is it your love for them? Or is it their love for you? Those two get pretty intertwined, don't they? And uh, I think Paul, Paul's reflecting that in this clause, in this little phrase. The fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Fear and love are the two greatest motivators. But I think love is the greatest. And, and he expresses that pretty well here. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we are convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. There's, it would be hard to find one line in the New Testament with more theological weight than this line. Let's read it again. One has died for all, therefore all have died. One has died. Not much debate about what that means. That doesn't take a lot of of interpretation to know what he means there. He's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the next word, for. One has died for all. Just a little Greek preposition. These, These prepositions are small words that often have a great deal of theological meaning. For all. What does he mean, one died for all? On the one hand, I think that for can mean for all in the sense of on our side. That in Jesus' death, he was showing he's on our side. It's sort of the Romans 8 again. I've alluded to Romans 8 once already. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side... Who can be against us? I think that's part of what this preposition means. That what Jesus did, he did for us, for our benefit. He's on our side. He revealed that on the cross. But I think it has another nuance. On our side also has a sense of in our place. There's a a substitutionary element to this little preposition, I think. That what Jesus did for us, he did in our place. He did something we could not do for ourselves. And I think both those are important. What he did demonstrated he's on our side. What he also did, he did in our place. Just the little word for. And then another little word, all. One has died for all. Now if you look in the notes at this section, I've given you a whole string of passages and I'm not going to take time to read all of them tonight, but it's sort of the, you know, for God so loved the world passages, uh, or passages that have to do with Christ dying for the world, uh, or dying for all, and uh, those passages are all important to me because we all have to understand what are we going to do with the all in these passages, or for the world, reconciling the world to himself, how are we going to understand those? And, uh, and 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 there, there's some debate at this point how how to understand all. And uh, it would take its own Bible study uh, to get into all the nuances of it. But my own understanding of what he means by all is, I think, what most of us mean when we say all. He died for everyone. And and I would say there is no limit to the sufficiency of Christ's death. Uh, I, I would argue it is without limit and it is not particular that he died for all. Not all my, not all my friends agree with me on that and, and they would want to nuance all in a little different way, but that's my own view. Uh, but it's a, it's a theologically packed little statement One died for all, therefore all died. And then somebody might say, well, it sounds like then, if you think the death of Christ was uh, unlimited, that I would not limit the sufficiency of Christ's death, and I said I don't think it's particular either, uh, then somebody might say, well, then you're a universalist. You think everybody. All is all. And nobody thinks that. Well, I mean, can't say that. No Southern Baptist thinks that. No, I wouldn't, no evangelical thinks that. I'd say that. That it's universal. That everybody is now saved because one died for all. We all say, and here's another point maybe of agreement. We all say that the benefit of Christ's death has to be applied. And how does that happen? By faith. Uh, I don't think anybody thinks That when Jesus died over there certain ones were already saved and certain ones were already condemned no that doesn't happen until his death is appropriated for us when we exercise faith now maybe he gives us that faith but the faith has to be exercised so no I'm not a universalist but I think the sufficiency of his death of his atoning death is without limit and it's not particular but if you want more on that you'd have to have a whole bible study on it and to be honest with you i don't see that happening for the winter bible study for southern baptist anytime soon we don't choose topics anyway we choose biblical books so we we have to interpret some of these things and that's it and so verse 15 and 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 he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves but for him who died and was raised for them From now on, Paul says, therefore, because of his death for us, and that we no longer live for ourselves but for him. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a merely human point of view or uh, according to the flesh. We don't look at people the same way we did before we experienced this reconciling work of God, where he died for us, and we experienced the benefit of that death. We don't look at people the same way. We used to look at people from a purely human point of view, according to the flesh. Not just the way they look on the outside, but we just used to look at them the way a fallen human being would look at another human being. We don't. Fallen human beings tend to not see people for all that they are or all that they can be. We tend. Especially before we become believers, when we're even more eaten up with ourselves than we are now, hopefully, we see people as a means to my own gratification. We look at everybody and think, well, what can they do for me? That's viewing other people according to the flesh, from a merely human point of view. Paul says, we don't look at, that, at people that way anymore. We look at them now, and we look beyond just the outer tent in which they dwell, this piece of human pottery in which we dwell we look beyond that he says uh, even though we once knew Christ according to the flesh and I don't think he means we used to see him walking around Jerusalem I think he means we used to think about Jesus as you know that child born to Mary and Joseph but we didn't understand he was the Messiah now we don't look at him the same way now we know him for who he is We know him no longer in that way. Verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Everything old is passed away. Behold, everything has become new. So what are the results of this work of reconciliation that God has done in Christ? One result is we don't view people the same way. We as God's people should not look at people the same way now as we did before we've been experienced this reconciliation with God. We of all people should be able to look beyond the external kinds of things and see the, the heart, the soul, that inner man that's re, being renewed day by day. We should see potential in people that other people can't see. We should see people no longer from a m- merely human point of view. That's one of the results of God's work of reconciliation uh, in our lives. Another one is, the new creation has already begun. God is already at work reconciling the world to himself. It's happening now. It's not just something that's going to happen down the road. God's in the process of doing that even now. Now we might not always see it. In fact, what we often can see, just like what you can see when you look at the the, the physical body. There's more at work than just what you see. We sort of get bogged down, and and I was talking to somebody up here the other night, I don't remember who it was, but about just the mess it seems like we're in, you know, as a country. I mean, just watch the presidential debates going on and think, we're in a mess, and I'm not sure there's anybody on the stage that looks like they know what they're doing. I get an amen on that, yeah. But... I I think we we cannot lose sight that no matter who gets elected president, that no matter what happens to the economy, that no matter what, what happens to the oil and gas industry, no matter what seems to be happening in our neighborhoods, God has not lost control of his creation and he is even now at work redeeming it and reconciling it to himself. And that's, sometimes you just have to Exercise faith, which is by definition having confidence in something that you can't see. So if nothing else, I hope you go out here tonight and think, you know what? If fill in the blank gets elected president in November, I'm not going to lose hope. And we certainly shouldn't. And you all know that when the Messiah arrives, he's not going to be on Air Force One anyway. Um, now where was I (laughs) that's as political as I'll ever get verse 18 all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation and what a great word what a great phrase I'll read it again All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. This work of God in reconciling us to himself through the death of Christ. Reconciliation is one of the great words of Christian theology. That in Jesus' death, he has made peace between me and the one who made me. The God who created me. The God who created all that is. And the problem was, I was hostile to God. I I had been disobedient to God. I was hostile to God. I was seeking my own way. I was addicted to myself. I wasn't worried about God. I wasn't worried about God's purposes in the world. I was shaking my fist at God, and all of us were. And despite that fact, God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. You know, you can't really do much theology if you get around to Romans here and there. Romans 5, verses 8 through 11. But God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse nine, much more then, now that we've been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, We even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Did you see he used the language of while we were sinners? Uh, That much more surely now that we've been justified we've been saying while we were enemies in verse 10. We were enemies with God. We weren't doing pretty good. We weren't making a pretty good effort to somehow make things right with God. We were enemies We were sinners. And what has Jesus done? He has provided an avenue of reconciliation between us and God. He has made peace between God and God's creation. Wouldn't you say that's a pretty significant word, reconciliation? There it is in Romans uh, chapter 5. Now, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. A couple other passages here. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse, we'll start at verse 15. No, let's start at verse 14. For he is our peace in his flesh. He has made both groups, that is, Jew and Gentile, into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through us i mean you knew you had a problem didn't you didn't you realize at some point you had a problem and that problem was you were separated from god and we earned it it wasn't that god was just real hard on us we earned it that separation what has he done in his cross he has made peace and then one more, and maybe the most powerful of all, Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 20 through 22. We'll start at verse 19. Colossians 1, 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him. Reconciliation is one of our most profound and significant theological terms. It reminds us that we were hostile and we were enemies with God and God has provided a means to be at peace with him. Have you ever been hostile to somebody you loved? Has the relationship with someone you love ever been fractured or broken completely? Maybe a son or daughter. Maybe a spouse. Maybe a husband and wife living in the same home, but the relationship is broken and there's hostility. You can feel it between them or maybe it's a son or a daughter and they've taken a path in their life and that path has caused the relationship between you to be fractured maybe even hostility what would it mean to you if someone entered into that and brought about reconciliation between you and a spouse or between you and your son or your daughter how appreciative would you be How valuable would that be to have a relationship like that restored? Well, how about your relationship with the God who made you? How valuable is that relationship? There's no hope of being at peace internally or with God if God had not acted on our behalf and he did it in Christ. And this is the reconciling work, the reconciliation that God has done for us in Christ. If, if you ask me what's at the core of Paul's theology, what, when you peel it all down and you get it down to its very core, what's there? Well, I don't think I can capture it in one word. I think there are several words that capture it, and reconciliation is one of them. Justification would be another one. But I don't think that's the only word or idea that's at the core of Paul's theology that's one of them but so is reconciliation and so is redemption and so is propitiation or his work as an atoning sacrifice there's about four or five really significant theological ideas that belong at the core of Paul's theology and sometimes I think we we highlight one of those to the exclusion of the other and there's no reason to do that you don't have to pick one It's like like saying, which, which child do you love the most? No, I'm not going to pick one. Which one of those theological ideas is at the core of Paul's theology? I wouldn't want to throw any of those out. And justification sometimes gets privileged because of its prominence in Romans and Galatians. You know, like 23 times the word that we translate justification or acquittal appears in Romans and Galatians. Man, that says that's a... Vital, core idea in Paul's theology. But outside of Romans and Galatians, he only uses the word three times. Three times in all the other letters. So what's that say? That says that's right at the core of his theology. But how about reconciliation? I just read about reconciliation from Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, and here in chapter 5, 17 through 20. You want to throw that out? So uh, I'd, I'd probably want to say, let's not lose this idea of God making peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus. As we're coming up on Good Friday, you know, and we think about the death of Jesus, the, his work as a peacemaker between human beings and God should be right at the forefront of what we talk about, along with our justification that we've been acquitted even though we were guilty. And redemption, that we were slaves to sin and ourselves, and and to the evil one, but he has set us free. He has purchased our freedom. All these words are right there at the core of Paul's theology. And here it gets as much treatment as you'll ever find it uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses eleven uh, through 21. And so he finishes all this off with what I remember as um, a kid in my Southern Baptist Church in southeastern Kentucky. Royal Ambassadors. Anybody remember the Royal Ambassadors and GAs? And on Wednesday night, the girls went this way for GAs, and the boys went this way for Royal Ambassadors. And I don't, I don't go to that many Baptist churches that still have RAs and GAs. But, uh, and, and maybe, I don't know, I, I don't want to overstate how meaningful it was, because to be honest with you, I remember playing more basketball uh, than I, I do anything. But I do remember 2 Corinthians 5.20. We we are ambassadors for Christ, and uh, you know I'm an eight nine year old, and uh, I'm wanting to get out of there as fast as I can to go play, but that verse has always stuck with me, and uh, even when I didn't know a lot about Second Corinthians, I did know Second Corinthians five twenty. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we'd probably do well to to think more deeply about what that means that Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his envoys. We are his representative in the world. And uh, I saw um, a documentary on Richard Holbrook. You ever heard that name, Richard Holbrook? Uh, He was someone who worked in the United States government. He, He was appointed to positions, significant positions, beginning with Lyndon Bain Johnson. Lyndon Bain Johnson, LBJ going all the way through to Barack Obama. He was appointed to some high position in every presidential uh, cabinet, or I guess most of them were cabinet positions, from LBJ to Barack Obama. Now that says a lot about you, if you can cross that, those presidents and still be appointed. He was appointed uh, ambassador to Germany, which put him in the position to be the lead negotiator when there was, remember all the, the problems in the Balkans, Croatia, Uh, and uh, I'm trying to think of the leader's name who escapes my mind, who was the ethnic cleansing was going on there, and it was such a tragic situation, and the United States ended up being the ones who went in and brokered peace. Well, it was Richard Holbrook. He was the lead negotiator in that whole process. Uh, He was appointed as a U.S. ambassador to the U.N., and it was very impressive the way it showed him standing and making certain arguments on behalf of the United States at the UN and winning those arguments. And it was not because Richard Holbrook was such an impressive person, although he was pretty impressive. It was because when he stood up and he made his case, he represented the government of the United States of America. He was there as the representative of the United States And he carried the authority of the people and the government of the United States. And if the U.N. rejected whatever argument he was making on any given day, they weren't rejecting Richard Holbrook. They were rejecting the United States and its government and its people. Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives. We are to make his case in the world... And if someone rejects it, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting him. We are his ambassadors in the world. That's a high calling. Paul thought it was, and it motivated him. And then verse twenty-one, if you're gonna memorize a few verses in Second Corinthians, you know, chapter four, like verse what, seventeen, what is it, four or four seven. We have this treasure in clay pots. That's a pretty good one. Uh, uh, Chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, uh, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's one to put on your memorization list. How about uh, verse 21? For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good stuff right there. Now, I'm going to finish up. Uh, I'm not going to read every verse through the rest of this. But beginning here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, he continues to defend his ministry of reconciliation. That that Paul's ministry was a no-fault ministry. He was a no-fault apostle. He did everything he could so that no one could say, it's your fault that I didn't come to Jesus, or it's your fault I didn't live... Uh, a life pleasing to him no fault ministry that's what he says that's what he details here in verses 1 through 13 at verse 11 I'm gonna pick it up there he says uh, I, uh, yeah verse ten's good but I gotta go I can't re- I'd like to go back but I'm gonna just start here at verse 11 now I'm gonna read you a pretty literal literal translation of it because it, translations they don't represent this particular these three verses very well verse 11 our mouth is wide open to you corinthians now your translation may say something like about the way we've spoken we've spoken genuinely or frankly or openly or something like that that your translation say something like that that's just trying to capture the idea there but here's a place where I don't want to just get the idea. I want to use the actual words he uses as closely as I can in English. Our mouth is wide open to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. And then I'm going to be literal again. There is no restriction in our bowels, but only in yours. In return, I speak, I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts to us also. If there's a problem in our reconciliation, if there's a problem in the relationship between me and you, Corinthians, the problem is not on my end. We are appealing to you to be reconciled with us, with me, with Titus, with Timothy. I appeal to you, our mouths are open, our heart is open, and there is no restriction in our bowels. Now, that's pretty earthy language there, isn't it? There's no restriction in our bowels. What's your translation say there? I bet it doesn't mention the word bowels. Um, maybe something about our, in our affections. Well, the word there is, is one of my favorite Greek words. It's splogna, splogna. It's a word for the gut, the entrails, the bowels. And in the first century, this this was the seat of your emotions. You might sometimes even translate it, the heart of a person, the gut. Don't we like people that make their decisions from the gut and not just by weighing the pros and cons? And isn't it true that we make a lot of decisions from the gut? We weigh everything out and then we go... In the opposite direction, and and somebody say, "Well, everything seemed to be pointing that direction. Why'd you go there? I just went with my gut, the gut, the the seat of your will and your affections." Paul said, "My affections are wide open to you. There's no restriction in them in our bowels." And you see what he's done? It's all about body parts. With every fiber of his being, he is appealing to them to be reconciled, mouth, heart, bowels. You could not describe it any more powerfully of a person appealing with every fiber, every organ in their body for reconciliation. And English translations, I'm thankful for them. People like Wycliffe and Tyndale Paid a high price so that we could have an English translation. I'm a big fan of English translations. But sometimes they just fail to capture something that's really profound. And I think here's one of those places. Mouth, heart, bowels. It's all wide open to them. So be reconciled. One other thing and then we'll be done tonight. I can't not say something about verse 14. And part of it is because it has been the object of a great deal of misinterpretation. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship is there between light and darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Beliar, uh, which is a Hebrew term for worthless. And it came to be used as a way to almost embody talking about the evil one. Or what does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And then he quotes six Old Testament texts that talk about being clean, avoiding uncleanness in in the world. It's funny that very few people quote this whole verse. It usually gets quoted just do not be unequally yoked, period. Not paying any attention to the with unbelievers, which is pretty significant here. The first time I really came face-to-face with how this text could be misinterpreted, I was pastoring uh, the Cedar Grove Baptist Church in Tazewell, Tennessee, and I was a junior in college, junior or senior. So here I am, a twenty twenty one year old Put in this position of being the Bible person, you know. I'm the person now. I'm in college, and here are these people who've been Christians longer than I've been alive, and they're running into situations in their, you know, in their lives, and they they're asking me what I think about those situations. So I get a call from a, a female in the church who's probably 20 years old. She'd gone off to college, and it's early summer late spring school was out she'd returned home she was back at home now after spending the year at college her freshman year I think and she came back home and finally got the nerve to tell her parents that she had a boyfriend you think okay that did not sound like it would take that much courage well here was the rest of it he was black Now, this is 1986, 1987, southeastern, or this would be East Tennessee. I live in southeastern Kentucky. This is East Tennessee, just over the border. And uh, so she said, now, she didn't tell me all that at the time. She said, my parents and I are having some conflict, and they, they said to call you, and they'd be happy for us all to meet together and talk about the situation. And she didn't tell me anything more. So, instead of being wise enough to say, well, what's this about? So I could be somewhat prepared, I just agreed and we met. And uh, they started laying out the situation. And they finally got around, to, here's the problem. Her boyfriend is black. What do you think about that, they said to me. Tell her that she can't do that. And I'm sure the deer in headlights idiom was created at that moment that I looked like a deer absolutely in headlights because I'm trying to try to think why would you think I would be able to tell you why she can't do that? You know, from the Bible. Tell her from the Bible. And uh, I asked them, what were you thinking about? Oh, they had some good ones. You know, the mark, the, the curse of Cain. I mean, they... They'd, they'd really been listening to I, I, And then they said, and you must not read your Bible enough because, and they quote this verse, Paul said, I think they said Paul said, they didn't know where it was, but you shall not be unequally yoked. And in their minds, that meant a white person shouldn't be married to a black person. That's unequally yoked. And I have no idea what I said I cannot remember. I'm sure I did not agree with them. And I know they left questioning whether or not I believe the Bible. If I'd been smart, I'd said, let's look at that text. And pointed out the with unbelievers. Now, if they'd called me there to that meeting and said, our daughter's dating an unbeliever, good text. I think that'd be a perfectly appropriate text to use there. But you can't just pull that do not be unequally yoked and think you can plug in the characters you want, uh, be it almost anything. Unbelievers, yes. Be careful how you use passages like that. Uh, Some of you may have seen that text used in that very way. That's not what it's talking about. And if that's what that text means, then any text can be made to mean anything you want it to mean. And we're surely headed down the wrong road if we're doing that with the Bible. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I think the warning is be cautious about developing relationships that are too intimate with people who are not believers. You need to develop relationships with unbelievers. You need to continue to be a light. But you have to also exercise caution because the unbeliever, if you get too tied up in the world of the unbeliever, may actually cause your sanctification, your holiness process to be set back. Be cautious. And uh, certainly dating and marriage would qualify under that of not, not being connected to unbelievers in that way. And uh, I'm not going to say anything else about chapter 7 tomorrow night. We're going to pick up at 8 and 9. And I've already covered eleven and twelve pretty good in the sermon on Sunday morning, so I'm, it's not like I've got. We're we're doing pretty well. We're going to finish it off okay. Um. So tomorrow night, what time is it? Is it six o'clock again? Or, I mean, is it six thirty again? Six thirty again tomorrow night, and uh, we'll we'll do this again and finish up Second Corinthians. And I know we're going fast, and it's a thirty thousand foot view of things, but. Hopefully, it provides you the framework that when you want to go back and study 2 Corinthians with the notes and thinking about it and reading it yourself, hopefully, um, you, can, you can grasp more of it and, and God can speak to you uh, in ways he might not otherwise have. Uh, how many of you have read, I gave you a little assignment. I said, up to now, you should have read ch- through chapters 8 and 9. Anybody made it that far? Oh, that's impressive. You all get A's. I'll leave the sheet up here at the front. Come and sign your name. You get an A. Now, if you've not done it, try to catch up. See if you can finish 2 Corinthians before you get here tomorrow night. Try to finish it out. And if you get, just keep reading. Don't get stuck. Just read through it. And uh, I'll pronounce my blessing, and then Owen's going to say something. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit